Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about press and media mogul Robert Maxwell. Robert Maxwell was one of seven children of Jewish parents, and was born Jan Ludwig Hock in the Czechoslovakian mountain village of Slatstinsky Doily, now part of Ukraine and known as Solotivnyo. He claimed to have not have had a pair of shoes until he was seven. He escaped Nazi occupation by fleeing to France as a teenager, but lost his parents, four siblings, and most of his extended family in the Holocaust. An absolutely terrible tragedy, and I feel very, very sorry for Robert Maxwell for losing a lot of his family due to the Holocaust and the Nazis. After joining the Czechoslovak army in exile, he was evacuated to Britain and joined the British Army under the name Ivan Demure, apparently after a very well-known cigarette brand, which is a brand I have never heard of, but apparently Demure is a Canadian brand of cigarettes produced by Imperial Tobacco of Canada, a subsidiary of conglomerate British American Tobacco. The brand is named after Sir Gerald Demure, the noted British actor. The brand was apparently launched in the United Kingdom in 1930 after the actor and producer Sir Gerald Demure, father of the authoress Daphne Demure, had made requests for a cigarette less irritating to his throat. End quote. He lent his name to the creation of a cigarette brand, the royalties for which he used to pay down his substantial tax liabilities. Maxwell fought in Normandy, met his wife Betty, a student at the Sorbonne, and won the military cross for heroism on the Dutch-German border. The decoration was pinned to his chest by Field Marshal Montgomery, who was rather an interesting character in and of himself. Throughout his life, he was a good friend to Israel, investing heavily in publishing, pharmaceutical, and computer firms in the country. He made accusations he was an Israeli spy with furious denials and legal threats. Such speculation was fanned again after his death when he was accorded almost a state funeral in Israel, attended by the Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir and the President Chaim Herzog, and buried in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, which to me gives some credence that he was in some way working for Israel among other countries because to me to be given such a prestigious honor as Maxwell signifies to me that he did something in return for that privilege not everyone is going to have the prime minister at their funeral reading a eulogy about them which I'll touch on later conspiracy theorists have claimed that Mossad killed him because Israel refused him alone and he threatened to retaliate which there is some evidence to support and back up this as I will put fanciful claim I'll go into these later on in the podcast Maxwell was an enormous figure in, in British national life apart from Mirror Group newspapers and the New York Daily News. His many businesses included Oxford United and Derby County football clubs. He rose from impoverishment as a Czechoslovakian refugee to become a decorated war hero, a businessman, a labor MP, and then a media mogul, amassing private jets, helicopters, and Rolls Royces en route. Maxwell was a very successful businessman, at least publicly he seemed this way. However, as we're about to get into, looks can be very deceiving. In July of 1984, Maxwell acquired Mirror Group Newspapers, the publisher of six British newspapers, including the Daily Mirror, from Reed International PLC for £113 million, which in today's money amounts to a staggering £448,792,446.85, almost half a billion dollars. This led to the famous media war between Maxwell and Murdoch, the proprietor of the News of the World and The Sun. How he bought the newspaper became controversial, however, when it transpired that he was using his own 
company's pension funds as collateral, but again, we'll touch on that a little later. Mirror Group newspapers, formerly Trinity Mirror, now part of Reach PLC, produced the Daily Mirror, a pro-labour tabloid, Sunday Mirror, Sunday People, Scottish Sunday Mail, and Scottish Daily Record. At a press conference to publicise his acquisition, Maxwell said his editors would be, and I quote, free to produce the news without interference, end quote. Meanwhile, at a meeting of Maxwell's new employees, Mirror journalist Joe Haynes asserted that he was able to prove that their boss is a crook and a liar, end quote. However, Haynes quickly came under Maxwell's influence and later wrote his authorised biography. In June of 1985, Maxwell announced a takeover of Clive Sinclair's ailing home computer company, Sinclair Research, through Hollis Brothers, a Pergamon subsidiary. The deal, however, was imported in August 1985, for reasons we're not totally aware of. In 1987, Maxwell purchased part of IPC Media to create Fleetway Publications, the same year he launched London Daily News. In February, after a delay caused by production problems, but the paper closed in July after sustaining significant losses, contemporary estimates put at £25 million. At first intended to be a rival to the Evening Standard, Maxwell had made a rash decision for it to be the first 24-hour paper as well, which would be really difficult to have a 24-hour paper because you'd have to be working round the clock, you'd have to have employees round the clock. I could see it being quite difficult to do that, especially in that period of time, late 1980s. By 1988, Maxwell's various companies owned, in addition to the Mirror titles and Pergamon Press, Nimbus Records, Maxwell Directories, Prentice Hall, Information Services, and the Berlitz Language Schools. He also owned a half share of MTV in Europe and other European television interests, Maxwell Cable TV, and Maxwell Entertainment. Maxwell purchased Macmillan Publishers, the American firm, for $2.6 billion in 1988. In the same year, he launched an ambitious new project, a transnational newspaper called The European. In 1991, Maxwell was forced to sell Pergamon and Maxwell directories to Elsiver for £440 million to cover his debts. He used some of this money to buy an ailing tabloid, The New York Daily News. The same year, Maxwell sold 49% of stock of the Murrah Group newspapers to the public. Maxwell was also chairman of the Oxford United, saving them from bankruptcy and attempting to merge them with Reading in 1983 to form a club he wished to call Thames Valley Royals. He took Oxford into the top flight of English football in 1985, and the team won the league club a year later. Maxwell bought into the Derby County in 1987. He also attempted to buy Manchester United in 1984, but refused owner Martin Edwards' asking price. A bugged version of the intelligence spy software Promise was sold in the mid-1980s for Soviet government use, with Robert Maxwell as a conduit, which means that Maxwell had a hand in all sorts of dodgy deals and under-the-counter shady shenanigans. reason I say that is because this same software was the same software that Danny Casolero was investigating shortly before his death. Maxwell also faced some harsh discrimination against him. At the beginning of 1969, it emerged that Maxwell's attempt to buy the tabloid newspaper News of the World had failed. The Carr family, which owned the title, was incensed at the thought of a Czechoslovak immigrant with socialist politics gaining ownership, and the board voted against Maxwell's bid without any dissent. The News of the World's editor, Stafford Summerfield, opposed Maxwell's bid in an October 1968 front-page opinion piece, in which he referred to Maxwell's Czechoslovak origins and use of his birth name. He wrote, and I quote, This is a British newspaper, run by British people, as British as roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. Let us keep it that way. End quote. The paper was later purchased by Australian tycoon Rupert Murdoch, who later that year acquired The Sun, which had also previously interested Maxwell. Now, see, that to me really irritates me, because basically that this being discriminatory against Czechoslovak people, saying such things as, let's keep this British, we don't want a Czechoslovak owning it. I mean, seriously, that's a very incendiary thing to say to someone of Czechoslovakian origin, and extremely discriminatory. Maxwell was also known to be lit- litigious against those who would speak or write against him. This satirical magazine 
magazine Private Eye lampooned him as Captain Bob and the Bouncing Chick, the latter nickname having originally been devised by Prime Minister Harold Wilson, under whom Maxwell was an MP. Maxwell took out several libel actions against Private Eye, one resulting in the magazine losing an estimated £225,000, and Maxwell using his commercial power to hit back with a one-off spoof magazine, not Private Eye. Robert Maxwell, however great he made himself out to look in the public area, gained quite a reputation as being a bombastic bully who was ruthless, not only in the business world, but also to his children, Ian and Kevin. Like all the Maxwell children, were regularly bullied by a father who thought nothing of humiliating them in public, although Ghislaine apparently didn't get it quite as bad. There were many witnesses to his treatment of his immediate family. None of them had very nice things to say about him. For example, Pandora, who reportedly refers to her former father-in-law as the fat fraudster, has spoken of the corporal punishment meted out to Kevin as a child. Greenslade witnessed Maxwell's public adonishments of Ian. And lastly, in her autobiography, Betty, who died aged 92 in 2013, described Maxwell as bullying, unfaithful, and frequently absent. Greenslade does not have fond memories of his time with Maxwell. From 1989 to early 1991, their first meeting before he was hired was at a dinner at a London casino. And I quote, He behaved atrociously, sweeping all the cutlery and crockery from the tables, saying it was badly laid out, end quote. He would sack people while Greenslade was away, playing mind games, bullied his staff. He used to urinate off the top of the mirror building and was known to leave the door open when using the office toilet. Staff often witnessed him trying to impress important visitors by picking up the phone and growling, and I quote, Get me the White House! Get me number 10! End quote. The switchboard would ring back three minutes later and he would turn his back pretending to be involved in a conversation. Once, Greenslade recalls, at a charity performance, Maxwell went on stage to lecture a prima ballerina on how to do a movement. Greenslade was quoted as saying, This was the nature of the beast. What you have here is kind of a sociopathic, possibly borderline psychopathic character. End quote. Maxwell wasn't the nice guy that he betrayed himself to be in front of the cameras. Maxwell had also been involved in other close scrapes that he managed to get himself out of. In 1954, his publishing warehouse company Simpkin Marshall was declared insolvent. Then in 1969, Maxwell lost control of Pergamon was ejected from the board, and in 1971, he was humiliated by a board of trade inquiry investigating a takeover bid at his publishing company, Pergamon Press, which declared him unfit to run a public company. Their exact quote was that Maxwell was, not in our opinion, a person who can be relied on to exercise proper stewardship of a publicly quoted company. It was found that Maxwell had contrived to maximise Pergamon's share price through the transactions between his five private family companies, which sounds dodgy as all hell to me. Maxwell's links with Eastern European totalitarian regimes resulted in several biographies of those countries' leaders with interviews conducted by Maxwell, for which he received much derision. At the beginning of an interview with Romania's Nicoli Ceausescu, then the country's communist leader, he asked, and I quote, how do you account for your enormous popularity with the Romanian people? End quote. Tragedy also struck his family. Of his and Betty's nine children, their firstborn Michael died aged 23 after several years in a coma following a car crash, and a daughter Karen died of leukemia aged three. With the exception of Ghislaine, the surviving children led lives away from the cameras. Maxwell had a very dark side to him that started people spreading all these sinister rumours about his mysterious death. The most sinister one was that Maxwell was suspected as being the person who tipped off the Mossad about the location of Moderichai Van Unu. The biggest proponent of this rumour and allegation was Eri Benbeneshi, who claimed that Robert Maxwell, the owner of Murrah Group newspapers in the United Kingdom, was a Mossad agent and that Maxwell had tipped off the Israeli embassy in 1986 about the Israeli nuclear technician Moderichai Van Unu after Van Unu and a friend approached the Sunday Mirror and the Sunday Times in London with a story about Israelis' nuclear capability. Van Unu was subsequently lured by Mossad from London to Rome, drugged with the paralyzing agents, kidnapped, returned to Israel, labeled a traitor, and sentenced behind closed doors to 18 years in jail. He had harsh conditions placed upon 
him, the most severe being that he cannot leave Israel. According to Ben Benishi, the Daily Mirror's foreign editor, Nicola Davis, also worked for the Mossad and was involved in the Venunu affair. However, no British newspaper would publish the Maxwell allegations because of his litigious reputation. A further hint of Maxwell's service to Israel was provided by John Loftus and Mark Ahrens, who described Maxwell's contact with Czechoslovak communist leaders in 1948 as crucial to the Czechoslovak decision to arm Israel in the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. Czechoslovak military assistance was both unique and crucial for the fledging state as it battled for its existence. According to Loftus and Ahrens, it was Maxwell's covert help in smuggling aircraft parts into Israel that led to the country having air superiority during the 1948 War of Independence. The Foreign Office suspected that Maxwell was a secret agent of a foreign government, possibly a double or triple agent, and a thoroughly bad character and almost certainly financed by Russia. He had known links to the British Secret Service, MI6, to the Soviet KGB, and to the Israeli Intelligence Service, Mossad. Six serving and former heads of Israeli intelligence services attended Maxwell's funeral in Israel, while Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir eulogized him and stated, and I quote, he has done more for Israel than can today be told, end quote. That statement alone to me, which I find to be a bit tongue-in-cheek, proves in my mind beyond any doubt that he had links with Israel and that he did them favours, because otherwise why would a former Mossad agent and six former serving heads attend his funeral? Shortly before Maxwell's death, a former employee of Israeli military intelligence directorate, Eri Bimbaneshi, approached a number of news organisations in Britain and the US with the allegation that Maxwell and the Daily Mirror's foreign editor Nicola Davis were long-time agents for Mossad. Bimbaneshi's story was ignored at first, but eventually journalist Seymour Hirsch of the New Yorker repeated some of the allegations during a press conference in London held to publicise the Samson option, Hirsch's book about Israeli nuclear weapons. My understanding was that Hirsch faced harsh criticisms for statements he made in his book in relation to Robert Maxwell being a Mossad agent and being in any shady dealings with Israel and was ordered to prove that what he was saying or shut up about it and Hirsch shot back publicly that he could prove anything in his book and would gladly prove what he stated in the book. On the 21st of October 1991 Labour MP George Galloway and Conservative MP Rupert Ellis and also known as espionage author Nigel West, agreed to raise the issue in the House of Commons under parliamentary privilege protection, which in turn allowed British newspapers to report events without fear of libel suits, which is how they were able to report this story without Maxwell being able to prove or being able to do anything about it legally. I won't quote chapter and verse as I don't know it, but my understanding of parliamentary privilege is that you can say anything about anyone even if the accusations you level at them haven't been found to be true or there ha- there isn't any hard facts and only rumours and hearsay and that person cannot sue you for defamation or charge that person criminally. Maxwell called the claims ludicrous and a total invention, but these allegations did cause a problem for Maxwell as Davis was now becoming a real problem because of the spotlight that all this drama was putting on both Maxwell and Davis, something they could both have done without. So they had a massive of falling out over this and Maxwell sacked Davis. A year later in Galloway's libel settlement against Mirror Group newspapers in which he received substantial damages, Galloway's counsel announced that the MP accepted that the group's staff had not been involved in Vanunu's abduction. Galloway referred to Maxwell as one of the worst criminals of the century. There is another fact that is also interesting about Robert Maxwell. Six months before he died, the Metropolitan Police Force had begun an investigation into allegations that Maxwell was a war criminal. How that came about was, in a note he wrote to his then-wife Betty, he described in detail how he had in March of 1945 received the disturbing news that his mother and sister had been executed as hostages by the Nazis in occupied Czechoslovakia. He wrote on receiving the news and I quote, as you can well imagine, I am not taking any prisoners and whatever home my men occupy before I leave, I order it to be destroyed. A month later, his platoon was involved in mopping up resistance from the German defenders. On the 2nd of April, Maxwell ordered his men to fire mortars at a German village. He wrote to Betty and I quote, a few minutes later, I saw them running out of the house and we started firing at 
each other. I got two of them and I ordered the mortars to shell the village for a few minutes, end quote. It proved to be a very effective tactic that led to the surrender of the remaining Germans and inspired Maxwell to try it once more when he moved towards a nearby town. And I quote, So I sent one of the Germans to fetch the mayor of the town, he told his wife. In half an hour's time, he turned up and I told him that he had to get the Germans to surrender and hang the white flag, otherwise the town will be destroyed. One hour later, he came back saying that the soldiers will surrender and the white flag was put up. So we marched off. But as soon as we marched off, a German tank opened fire on us. Luckily, he missed, so I shot the mayor and withdrew. End quote. Maxwell's death triggered a flood of instability for his publishing empire, with banks frantically calling in their massive loans. Despite the efforts of his sons Kevin and Ian, the Maxwell company soon collapsed. It emerged that without adequate prior authorization, Maxwell had used hundreds of millions of pounds from his company's pension funds to shore up the shares of the Murrah Group to save his companies from bankruptcy. Eventually, the pension funds were replenished from money from investment banks Shearson Lemon and Goldman Sachs, as well as the British government. This replenishment was limited and also supported by a surplus in the printer's fund, which was taken by the government in part payment of £100 million required to support the workers' state pensions. The rest of the £100 million was waived. Maxwell's theft of pension funds was therefore partially repaid from public funds. The result was that, in general, pensioners received about half of their company pension entitlement. The Maxwell companies filed for bankruptcy protection in 1992. His business empire was on the brink of collapse. Without authority, he used hundreds of millions of pounds from his company's pension funds to finance his corporate debt, his frantic takeover, and his lavish lifestyle. A £460 million hole was discovered in the pension funds of his companies. A borrower of unimaginable scale, he had illegally raided the funds to prop up his empire, which was on the brink of collapse. Headlines such as, The Man Who Saved the Mirror was swiftly replaced by Maxwell, The Robber. It's like stealing someone's car tires and propping them up on bricks to save your own car, also propped up on bricks. A rob Peter to pay Paul style scenario. Maxwell had taken two loans from the bank Goldman Sachs, one for £20 million and one for £30 million, and had failed to repay them. George had been informed the bank was starting to sell Murrah Group and MCC shares it held as collateral, and Maxwell had been summoned. The news of the share sale broke on the 5th of November, just hours before Maxwell's naked body was found. A brief audit showed that under Maxwell's stewardship, the Daily Mirror's circulation had fallen from £3.54 million to £2.87 million, and its reputation as a trustworthy crusading newspaper had been trashed. Overall, Murrah Group's three main titles were down 2.4 million copies on their average monthly sales. Maxwell had changed the editors of his three main titles no fewer than 16 times in seven years, thrashing around for some non-existent circulation boosting formula, and with one exception, allowing no one time to settle into the job before replacing them. Richard Stott was the one exception. The investigation really picked up speed after Maxwell had died and his pension fund scheme had been uncovered. The investigation to Robert Maxwell's misdeeds became a mini-industry. By September 1992, nine major firms of accountants, 22 law firms, five investment bankers, and a firm of brokers were involved. The serious fraud squad and fraud office had more than 40 people working on the case. Up to £60 million was paid in fees to lawyer and accountants. Quote, this is the biggest thing since Lloyd's. One of the solicitors involved in the case was quoted as saying, we've made so much money that we've voted Robert Maxwell as businessman of the year, end quote. The government set up the Maxwell Pensioners Trust Fund to retrieve money from financial institutions who had taken pension fund assets as collateral and wished to avoid court action. Sir John Cuckney, the government-appointed arbiter, recovered most of the missing £440 million. £276 million in and out of court settlements and the government finally agreed a payout of £100 million. But the negotiations took three years and some of Maxwell's non mg and employees died without receiving a penny of their pensions. The ultimate insult to the pensioners was the appointment of two of Maxwell's non-executive 
directors Clark and Clemens as chairman and deputy chairman of MGN. The beginning of the end of Robert Maxwell began with another little wrinkle that has been looked into by many people. Nigel West, then a sitting MP member for Parliament, claimed that he had received from, as he quoted it, the best possible source, a series of documents that indicated that Davis was selling arms to the Sri Lankan government with full knowledge and approval of Robert Maxwell, and that this was purely a money-making exercise. What makes this even more damning was that at the time there was an arms embargo which meant no weapons could legally be sold to Sri Lanka, which meant by that selling weapons to Sri Lanka, Robert Maxwell was illegally selling weapons to a foreign country. In 1991, there were allegations of a far greater crime coming out of the Mirror Group. Arms dealing. The allegations were made in Parliament by Nigel West, then a sitting MP, on the 21st of October of that year. Well, I received from the best possible source a series of documents that indicated that an employee uh, on the Mirror was engaged in uh, trading for arms uh, with the knowledge of Robert Maxwell. The two of them had conspired together to supply weapons to the Sri Lankan government. These were embargoed weapons and this was a money-making exercise and it was outside of the law. Maxwell's co-conspirator was Nick Davis, the Mirror's foreign editor. Though Davis categorically denies the allegation. With the kind of pull and power he had at the time, as some have put it, it would have been easy for him to open doors to all sorts of places and get his hands on anything he wanted. Nigel was even again quoted as saying that, that at the height of his power, Robert Maxwell appeared to be the type of guy who could do absolutely anything he wanted. Or at least he was perceived to be able to do anything he wanted. What makes his claims interesting is the fact that British reporters have found witnesses linking Ben Benishi and Nicola Davis to, at the very least, deals. Ben Benishi's story is that he and Davis teamed up in 1983 to form a company called Aura Limited, operating from the South London home of Davis, first in Stretheim and later in the Old Kent Road, which began to promote arms shipments to Iran on behalf of the Israeli Ministry of Defense. This has been denied by all Ben Benishi's alleged contacts in Israel and by Davis, who insists that Ben Benishi was only a friend who used his address for business correspondence. Nor can it be properly verified from documents supplied by Benishi, and there is no trace of a company called Aura, either in the British Isles or Tel Aviv, where it operated from. However, one of Britain's biggest arm brokers revealed that he discussed the purchase of Kalashnikov rifles with Davis six years ago. John Knight, an international businessman and arms supplier, who has traded legally in arms for more than 10 years, said Davis told him he was acting with Ben Beneshi. Knight said he had shown Davis spare part for Kalashnikov AK-47 rifles, which Davis says were for an American buyer. Davis also put Knight in touch with Ben Beneshi, with whom Knight discussed the sale of mortars and shells, anti-personnel mines and ammunition. Knight said he believed the final customer for the 200-ton consignment was the Israeli-backed South Lebanese Army. He told Davis and Ben Beneshi that he would deal with them if he had the necessary legal papers, and none of the deals went ahead. These discussions took place in early 1985, shortly before Davis went to Ohio in the United States, to visit a would-be arms go-between who says they were introduced by Ben Beneshi. Another would-be arms dealer by the name of Kaufman stated that in 1984 he met Ben Beneshi while visiting Israel. Back home again, Kaufman says he got into conversation with two local businessmen, the Johnson brothers, about the chances of getting hold of military items that they wanted to supply to the Nigerian army. Kaufman contacted Ben Beneshi, who came almost immediately to visit him in Ohio and to discuss the deal with the Johnson brothers. Ben Beneshi said he would send his partner Nick Davis from London to 
conclude the deal and asked Kaufman to meet Davis to try and clinch the deal, but it never went through. There's nothing under the table about this. It was all very legal, he said, adding that Davis never mentioned he was a journalist. Personally, I find it hard to believe that no documents existed or that Bimbanishi made the whole thing up for a couple of reasons. First, Bimbanishi later posted seven documents relating to sales of arms by Davis, sometimes signing himself as Davis. Bimbanishi also stated Davis was a major player in the arms sales to Iran and made more than $1.5 million on one deal. So if Davis wasn't involved, then there shouldn't have been any paperwork with his name on it linked with the arms sales. And there is seven of them, to be exact. Now, I know that people will say, well, anyone can forge and fake documents. It's been done before, and I agree. But I don't see that in this case, although I am open to the idea. The second niggling little thing is that Davis' former wife, Janet Fielding, confirmed that Davis was selling arms in partnership with Ben Benishi. In an interview with Seymour Hersh, she stated, Nick would try to tell me stuff about the arms sales, and I said, I don't want to know. I left him because of it, end quote. She also stated that she was aware that his arms sales partner, Ben Benishi, was an Israeli intelligence operative. This puts a real dent in Davis and others who say that he was never in the arms trade. Robert Maxwell, who was known for going after anyone who printed anything negative about him, plastered Nigel West's face on the front page of his newspapers, denouncing him as being a part of a dirty tricks campaign against him when that wasn't what Nigel was doing. Davis was named by Uri Benbenesh as his business partner in Profits of War in relation to Iran Contra and the sales of Promise, the first computer spyware. The arrangements was also noted in the book Robert Maxwell, Israeli Super Spy, The Life and Murder of a Media Mogul by Gordon Thomas. Maxwell had up to this point dodged a lot of bullets, but unlike before, these allegations stuck, and as always, people don't like being caught up in controversy. The shares for his newspaper collapsed as he had used his pension fund as collateral. He didn't have enough money to pay back his loans, and he was short about $200 million. It has been alleged that this is when his Israeli ties came into play. The Prime Minister at the time was a guy by the name of Yitzhak Shamir, who'd been a high-ranking member of Ergen Zvailumi, a Zionist paramilitary group that opposed British control of Palestine. This group was also listed as a terrorist organization because of their bombing campaign, most notably the bombing of the King David Hotel in Jerusalem on the 22nd of July 1946. After being with this group and moving on in the first years of Israeli's independence, Shamir managed several commercial enterprises. In 1955, he joined the Mossad, serving until 1965. During his Mossad career, he directed Operation Damocles, the assassinations of German rocket scientists working on the Egyptian missile program. He ran a unit that placed agents in hostile countries, created the Mossad's division for planning, and served on its general staff. Shamir resigned from the Mossad in protest over the treatment of Mossad Director General Issa Harel, who had been compelled to resign after Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion ordered an end to Operation Damocles. This wasn't the type of guy you either wanted to piss off or try and blackmail or get on the bad side of. Sadly, Robert Maxwell, it is rumoured to have tried to use his connections with Israel to get the money he needed to save his company and pay back those he'd borrowed money from. Given his propensity for treating people and how he throws tantrums when he doesn't get his way, when they refused him the money, Maxwell is said to have threatened the Prime Minister by saying he would release secrets about Israel if he didn't get the money. This rumour has fueled speculation that the Israeli Mossad put together a hit team to take out the loudmouth Robert Maxwell, and there is some evidence to back up this claim. No one actually saw what happened to Robert Maxwell on the boat, although there are those out there who claim they spoke to those on board, including the captain, who claimed no foul play happened. The thing is, though, no one knew he was missing until the next morning when it was found that he disappeared from the boat. It has been said that around 4am Maxwell called asking for some coffee, but this was never confirmed, and he went missing in the early hours of the morning of the 5th of November, 1991. The theory that sits most with me is that the Mossad dressed up some agents as boat crew who were already on the boat when Maxwell arrived. Then when he was alone, they injected him with a strong sedative and threw his body overboard. This would have been the easy way to get rid of him because he had bad health problems around this time, including heart and lung problems. Mix that with a strong sedative and not being able to move and the panic that he must have gone through. Maxwell, when he realized what was happening to him and not being able to swim or breathe, left him to drown. It was 
was also well known that he liked to piss naked off the side of the boat into the sea. This way, him being found in sea with his conditions and people knowing how he liked to piss off the side of the boat makes it look either like a suicide attempt because of what was happening to his company or it was an accident. He also had an abrasion on his arm which could have been from someone throwing him over and his arm brushing against the wire railing as he was being pushed over it. The crew on the boat that night were never questioned and they subsequently disappeared. The Spanish police also showed no interest in detaining and questioning them or finding out where they went. Shamir's squad was already in the Lady Ghislaine when Maxwell arrived, disguised as members of the crew. Nobody ever interfered them, they disappeared. And the Spanish police didn't go after them either, as far as I know. And one of the other curious things, none of the tabloid press have produced anybody from the crew who's credible with an account of what happened. Which to me raises some interesting questions by itself and leads me more to the Hit Squad rumour than any other theory. The other point is I'm not sure if they did any kind of toxicology examination on his body to test for any kind of drugs or other liquids in his body. To my knowledge they didn't as they assumed it was an accidental drowning so we may never know exactly how he died, whether it was as they say really an accident or something far more sinister. Margaret Thatcher, ex-British Prime Minister also known as the Iron Lady was quoted by Nigel West by saying that she thought Robert Maxwell had been bumped off by the Mossad but she didn't say why she thought this was or how it may have been carried out only that she thought this is what had happened I just don't see Robert Maxwell killing himself Maxwell strikes me as the type of guy who thumbed his nose at society in general and had such a narcissistic view of himself and that he was untouchable I mean killing himself would have amounted to him admitting defeat I don't see him as someone who would surrender without a fight much less kill himself because of losing now Maxwell's body was found in the Atlantic floating face up eyes wide open 28 miles off Grand Carina and 100 miles east of Tenerife now that's one side of the theory. The other side of the theory is that there are those, however, who believe there was no foul play involved and that nobody murdered him. But the evidence doesn't support this claim entirely, though. An inquest into his death failed to answer any of the key questions. The medical evidence was equivocal. Three pathologists who performed post-mortem examinations failed to agree about the circumstances of his death. One concluded he died of a heart attack. Another said he suffered a heart attack and drowned, while a third dismissed the heart condition as a cause of death, saying Maxwell had fallen into the sea and drowned. Other interesting pieces of information about this process that come from the late conspiracy theorist Jim Keith's book The Octopus which tells the story about the death of Danny Casalero who investigated the whole Promise affair stated that one of the forensic specialists who worked on Maxwell's body later noted that there was a small perforation under Maxwell's left ear which could have been the result of him having been injected with something. The odd part about this is I've only ever seen this mentioned in that book and not anywhere else. One would think this would have been looked into at least it damn well should have. Ken Lennox then the Mirror's senior photographer who saw the publisher's naked corpse shortly after it was pulled from the sea is convinced it was an accident. And I quote, he used to get up at night and pee over the stern of the ship. Everybody knew this. And he weighed about 22 stone, which is about 140 kgs at this time. The railings were wire, so I think he lost his balance because he was very top heavy. He was a Teflon man. I don't think he committed suicide. End quote. Another version of what happened was that Robert Maxwell, who was 68 at the time of his death, in poor health, weighing 22 stone, 140 kgs, and with a weak heart and lungs, shortly before dawn, left his cabin and went to the rear of the boat. His door was bolted from the outside. He fell over a low rail and dangled over the water 10 feet below. He clung on with his weaker left arm, tearing the muscles on that side of his body. Greenslade also dismisses the murder theory. Having interviewed the captain and crew of the Lady Ghislaine in depth, he has concluded that no one could have got on board that fateful night, which I don't agree with, as no one saw him during the hours he's meant to have toppled over the side of the boat, so no one can say for sure that, that someone didn't give him a helping hand over the side of the boat. So what happened to the major players in this case? Moderachi Vanunu was labelled a traitor and jailed for 18 years. He was subsequently released with extremely strict conditions, most notable of which is that he cannot talk to the media and he cannot
not leave Israel. Robert Maxwell's sons left to pick up the pieces of their father's deceit and lies and filed for bankruptcy protection in 1992. Kevin became the biggest bankruptcy case in Britain at that time to the tune of £400 million. It also came out that the serious fraud office had spent money to the tune of £13.6 million tracing money through Maxwell's web of over 400 companies, the result of which led Kevin to being charged with fraud against the pensioners. Kevin was also charged with conspiring with his father to use other assets and shares in an Israeli company, Skytex Corporation, to illegally raise money for other Maxwell companies. They were, however, successful in defending themselves against the charges and were acquitted of the charge. Ghislaine Maxwell followed in her father's footsteps and got mixed up with billionaire pedophile Jeffrey Epstein, whose death in 2016, right as he was on the verge of exposing everyone he knew to be involved in his pedophile ring, and was murdered in his jail cell under what can only be described as extremely suspicious circumstances, which was ruled as a suicide. She was charged with being involved in his network. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time. Next on Unanswered Questions. So let me get this straight. You have 16 aircraft crashes, 20 suicides, 22 bodyguards and escorts who all had a connection in some way to them, 56 military and law enforcement who had connections to them, 8 investigative journalists, 7 women who were all in some way involved with them, 5 fundraisers, 13 lawyers, 23 witnesses, 5 medical personnel, and 11 political staff who all knew something incriminating, dying all under very suspicious circumstances, and you expect me to believe that it's all a hoax and just a coincidence? Ha! I think not. 